Welcome to episode one of the Linked Up podcast, where we take the time to interview everyday individuals about all things relating to design, technology, and entrepreneurship. In this episode, I spoke to Nate Ghana, creator of Single Malt Daily. We discuss his passion for whiskey, his tips on marketing, and what it takes to continue to grow yourself and your brand. I'm so happy to have you on. This is like, it's exciting for me. And this is our inaugural episode, officially. Um, I'm honored. So it's exciting to have you, uh, to have you be our first guest. Tell us a little bit about the history of Nate Ghana, maybe outside of work, where you were born, where you grew up, you know, some childhood memories maybe so, that stand out. So I'm originally from Vancouver, born and raised. I'm actually Japanese and Malaysian, which does play a part in what I do now because uh, obviously Japanese whiskey is a very prominent topic right now in, in the world of whiskey. So uh, my parents are Japanese and Malaysian. I grew up speaking Japanese and French, obviously from Canada. Um, but, you know, the, the, the funny thing about what I do now is that it was just a hobby. And, uh, you know, I came into it just totally with, you know, blinders on and didn't realize it was going to be what it is today, so I'm very fortunate. But uh, my background is definitely nothing to do with social media or Instagram in, in that respect. What were some jobs that you had before you started Single Malt Daily? So prior to this, I was at UBC when I started in fashion, oddly enough. And uh, I was in fashion for quite some time. And then I was the uh, director of sales for a photo booth company that uh, got picked up by Microsoft and they took us around the US to multiple events for the NFL, for Bing, for the Oscars, Grammy, Sundance Film Festival for four years and uh, transitioned into this by pure accident. So maybe tell us a little bit about how you got into whiskey and you know what were some of the first ones that you tried and uh, how that transitioned right. into a, an Instagram account and one that the size that it is. So when I first started, I was actually, what was going on was, you know, back in the day, I would come home from, from school. I was flying in and out from school and my mom and I had this ritual of picking out a bottle from, from the liquor store at the airport every single time I'd come home and, and I started to build up this collection. And one day I went to the airport and picked out a bottle of uh, a pretty but it turns out pretty rare Macallan now and uh, bought it for like a hundred bucks. And, and someone came to the house one day, like 10 years later and said, Hey, that's a pretty cool bottle. I'll, I'll give you 1200 bucks for it. And I thought like, wow, okay, uh, sure. You know, and, and I didn't know anything and it was none the wiser really. And then uh, about three months later, the same thing happened with a different bottle and uh, it was about 500 bucks. And some guy came over and said, you know, that's a great bottle. I'll give you, I'll give you $3,000 for it. So, you know, I thought, wow, this, there's got to be something more to this than what I'm seeing. And so I started to dive into the whiskey side of things and realized that it was more of a commodity than it was a, a drink. And so now you see pieces in the whiskey world that are, you know, fetching millions of dollars per bottle. And uh, I'm what you would call essentially a luxury valuator in a lot of respects for whiskey. So it kind of turned from a hobby to an actual career which is very rare, I think. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome, just the kind of discovery. And when did you start the Single Malt Daily Instagram account? So the Instagram was started in May of 2015, and uh, 
it's now my full-time career, which I am extremely blessed to have as a great successful job. And um, my reputation has, uh, you know, withstood the test of time and, and has treated me very well. So I'm very fortunate in that respect. It's going on five years to the month, actually. So if somebody had to ask you to describe all the things that you do um, as they relate to, to your job, how would you describe a month in the life of Nate? Pre-pandemic, it was pretty fantastic. Uh, I travel about nine months of the year right now. I usually wind up in the US, uh, in Europe, and in Asia. And um, it's not necessarily work-related in the sense that uh, I come home and I get paid to post, but companies fly me out to go to distilleries. And that's where a lot of the fun happens is I get to learn from the best people in the world and from a perspective that not very many get to see as most people only get to see the finished product of a whiskey bottle, whereas I get to understand what goes into making whiskey from the grassroots, which is extremely unique. And like I said, I'm very lucky because some of these distilleries only do five to six people per year on a visit like that. So it's quite unique to be able to go and do these things and go through Scotland and go through uh, Taiwan and Japan and, and see what is do, being done behind the scenes. Yeah. What would be some things that people are surprised to learn uh, about the process of creating whiskey that you've had the chance to see on some of these trips? So the first thing is before it's whiskey, it's beer. And then it's really proofed up to become whiskey, which is really neat. Uh, the other thing is all spirits, nobody knows that all spirits start out clear. So they're all clear. So, you know, whether you have an aquavit, a whiskey, a rye, a vodka, a gin, it doesn't matter. The color in whiskey comes from the finishing of the whiskey being in the wood cask. And it is extracting the color from the wood and actually getting its color that way. So it actually really starts clear. That is fascinating. I had no idea. Very unique. Very unique. That's incredible. So if you would have to describe to someone then what makes a, a, a good whiskey or a luxury whiskey as compared to maybe your off-the-shelf, low-quality, obviously, God forbid to call something low-quality, but a, a lesser-quality whiskey that you would say, buy this. This is what you're looking for uh, in a bottle. So – this is where marketing plays a crucial role. Um, marketing is everything in every industry, as you know. And in, in this particular case, it's no different. You know, um, People will spend three to four times the price on a bottle knowing that it's a bottle of Macallan versus a bottle of, let's just say, um, Glen... Ooh, this, is a, this is a tough call. Let's say Glen, Glen Elgin. Uh, there's there's different names that speak different volumes and one of those names is McAllen. it doesn't mean that Glen Elgin is uh, uh, of a lower quality brand by any means it just means that the marketing value behind the McAllen name is so incredibly high and so there's the thing with scotch whiskey is that there's really no poorly made brands in that respect it's really just the marketing value and then what I tell my clients when I'm doing whiskey tastings is that 60% of what they're tasting is actually the story. So, you know, it's always 
telling a story when you're drinking scotch whiskey, which is one of the reasons I love this industry so much. No one really tells a story in any other uh, liquor, whereas scotch whiskey dates back hundreds of years. Uh, the number of families, the number of clans that have been passed down and, you know, uh, generational respect is is really there in Scotland in all senses of the word. And so really myself coming into this world was actually a breakthrough because uh, social media is a very new thing to that world of tradition, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It does. So... I guess then the follow-up to that would be what are some um, marketing – the keys to marketing and keys to branding and storytelling <coughs> Excuse me, that you've learned from these companies over the last few years? And how has that impacted your brand and how you market yourself? Really, it's just an appeal of um, looking at you know, what they're trying to do. Like, for instance – McAllen just created a 140 million pound distillery in Scotland and it, uh, a visitor center. And, and the visitor center itself looks like you're entering a spaceship. And that was such a great play for them that it got voted times number three best destination centers in the world for visitors. You know, that right there essentially will pay off that $140 million investment just from having an article state that kind of resonance, you know, that what they put in, they got out pretty much right away in an article saying that that's a place that you should visit on your next vacation, you know, um, that says a lot, you know, but only a, a brand as well as, you know, as, as popular as Johnny Walker or McAllen could do such a, such an ostentatious thing and have so much spend on something like that to be able to make themselves so coveted that that's a place that you want to go and visit. You know, the, most people go to Scotland and Scotland is a very, uh, it's a lot of arable land. It's, it's very mundane. It's not a place you go to say party or, you know, enjoy the sunshine. It's, it's quite cold quite often and it's damp and wet and for them to actually transcend that and say, visit Scotland and, and check out this, amazing visitor center that we've built it's quite a feat to be honest with you because they don't have the luxury of being you know the tallest building in the world a lot of people travel to taipei and to dubai to go and stand in the tallest building in the world this isn't that by any stretch of the imagination this is just a place where they make whiskey but they've done such a good job of it and make you feel like you're so special in this in this spaceship that uh it's been a huge success for them a wild ride really right so for, for those of us, you know, we're smaller brands per se, what would you suggest we do in the sense of um, kind of marketing ourselves, telling our story? Um, what are we looking to, to teach people or to entice people with? Really at that point, you're, you're, that's where putting so much quality into your product uh, becomes crucial. Um, there's obviously discerning factors amongst taste and you know, to give you a breakdown, 95% uh, of Scotch whiskey is matured in bourbon casks or ex-American oak casks or what they ca are called. Um, what that means is bourbon cannot be used more than one time uh, in regards to the barrel when they're, when they're um, maturing the bourbon. So once that's been matured, 
they must do something with that oak and law states that you can't reuse that oak in bourbon so you have to figure out what to do and how to make your money back so they sell those barrels to the scotch whiskey industry and to the japanese whiskey industry and so those barrels go for sixty dollars a barrel uh sherry oak casks from jerez spain go for roughly eight hundred dollars a barrel and mizunara oak casks from japan which are exceptionally coveted uh mizunara oak costs you about seven thousand dollars a barrel so you're looking at sherry casks being you know highly coveted they're pretty much out of stock in in spain on sherry casks if they're not um mccallan and glenfiddich and all the big companies own a majority of those already so you really have to try and discern your product with how you're manufacturing it how you're producing it how your master blender is uh taking into account what he's making and and those things can separate a brand and don't get me wrong there's still very successful newer brands out there um one of them being compass box being a great example compass box focused on their marketing appeal they focused on what they could control you they can't control what johnny walker does or what mccallan does they can control what they can control and in that respect their marketing their packaging looks beautiful the person behind the liquid is actually johnny walker's ex-former head and so he had a reputation already so coming into the industry for him it was actually quite an easy transition for him to be able to build his own brand based on what he knew from johnny walker but you often see people coming into this industry uh that already have a reputation and that is what's helping them get ahead in this game right now that's fantastic Turning to, to your growth uh, in relation to some of these these companies that you've dealt with, how has uh, the account, how has that progressed from just a hobby of posting stuff on an Instagram account? Um, what were the in-between stages and, and, and how has it become what it's become today and what exactly has it become today? So today it is really, a, it's sort of a marketing agency really. Um, right now, it's, it's a very interesting time. So forgetting right now, barring right now, uh, I just managed to make my pictures look uh, sexy. And why I say that is because you have to be able to make your product stand out and, and not product in the physical sense, but everybody has a product, right? What, what makes a podcast better than another podcast? That's product. And so from my perspective, what makes my photos better than other photos? And I managed to make my photos look better than others uh and i'm not saying that from a, a party standpoint of myself being the the discerning factor i'm saying that from the fact that uh i was hoping to have a thousand followers by the end of 2015 and i had 10,000 and um it was a snowball effect of five six hundred followers a day at one point coming on and and just following me for the way i was posting so it was kind of proven in itself uh, from early on that it was going to be bigger than just a hobby. And the uh, second part to that was I had to dig my heels in for a good year and a half to two years of, of no income, just growing the account to a point where it was worth it to other brands to come on and say, hey, you know what, that's the guy that we need to get our our product in front of his audience um you know the 
the first real companies that came on board that that were really great to me were uh, LVMH, uh, which was actually Hennessy and uh, Glenn Livid. They were actually really good to me and they believed in me and came on and uh, said, you know what, he's got a crowd that uh, is actually, you know, the perfect crowd that would actually buy whiskey, not just look at whiskey on Instagram. And now Instagram is really a driving force uh, financially for a lot of marketing firms. Uh, they, the, you can spend a lot less money a lot more effectively by hiring a, a me, for example, than you could uh, essentially putting a television ad into something outdated, such as watching a sports event and spending millions of dollars and maybe not reaching the exact audience that you would want to. In Instagram, this is an extremely targeted audience of who follows me. Uh, it's, it's a wealthier demographic that follows me that's interested in, in luxury whiskey. Uh, whereas putting on a Rolex commercial during Wimbledon just because you like tennis doesn't necessarily you mean mean you have the money for a Rolex watch, exactly. right? And so that's been a huge factor in why uh, TV has become a lot less popular because the cost to put ads on TV is actually astronomical versus what you can achieve on a larger platform, arguably, for a more targeted demographic in Instagram. That's fascinating. The something I'm curious about um, is how you branched off from Instagram um, into, if you want to call it, non-Instagram-like activities. What are some of those activities? I know a few of them, uh, but what are some of those activities that you've branched out into doing? And uh, tell me a little bit about those experiences. So a lot of those that are not Instagram-related are are actually going and touring around the world and and doing tours with companies in their facilities that would be one big thing another thing is we have a group of tech tastings that we do um that i by no means attend but we we uh essentially facilitate uh let's say that an office space like google who treats their employees like gold wants to put on a whiskey tasting for them they'll contact me and, and in turn i'll contact a brand and that brand will have representation at the Google campus and host a whiskey tasting for individuals at that campus. And why this is a great marketing tool is because all those people on those campuses are, you know, generally between 25 and 35, all earning, you know, upwards of six figures. And a lot of them are trying to learn. They're not trying to uh, take advantage of anything. They're always trying to learn. And so, if they get a new product that comes into their office, they just want to know about the product. And if they like the product, they'll go buy the product. And that is kind of your essentially direct marketing at its finest uh, in that respect. So we have five Google offices that we do that for. We do it for Nike. We do it for WeWork, Vice, Facebook, Instagram, and we just landed Netflix. That's fantastic. You mentioned that these are some of the, uh, you know, the Instagram account and these tastings are really great examples of, of direct marketing. Um, I'm curious how you feel the uh, distillery tours that you mentioned earlier and some of those in-person experiences that you get to have, um, what kind of area of marketing do those fall into and what exactly is the appeal of those to you know the people that are watching your experience? 
or is it not for that? Well, to be honest, this industry is kind of a nerdy industry in the, in the sense of uh, people want to know what kind of barley was used to you know, produce a whiskey. Um, people want to know what kind of wash stills were used to make the whiskey. Y you know, it's a very nerdy industry, which I love. And, you know, we can kind of geek out with each other and talk about these things on a different level. And I think that's the appeal is being able to talk to people that want to learn about this industry. And, and the same thing goes, you know, a lot of people will spend the money on a good bottle of whiskey, but they really want to feel like they've they know what they're doing when they have that bottle of whiskey. They don't want to just spend to spend. Um, whereas a lot of the times, you know, people will spend money on a, on a car, but if you know cars, you know that you don't have to go buy the newest one to have the best one. You can buy used, save a lot of the money that it depreciates off the top of the lot when it gets taken by someone else, the first right. owner. And, you know, you can have that, right? You can spend the money that way. In this particular case, it's different because you're talking about a highly sought after collectible market. And so a lot of people that are collecting these things know a, a lot of the history of these distilleries and know what they went through and, and how the industry is changing. And so you've got this kind of, I, I would argue that it's a more collectible industry now than most industries out there. Um, I definitely think it's more collectible than wine now. Uh, almost on a on a five or six fold basis wine you know also has that capacity to go bad and and that's a big thing wine can go bad because the alcohol content isn't high enough whereas whiskey won't go bad and in that respect arguably makes it more collectible because it can last the test of time whereas wine really can't you know so it's um it's an interesting puzzle it's not only the producing and the manufacturing of it but the history and the collectible nature of it so it's got a few different areas that can interest a lot of people and now that you've been traveling and, and going all over the place how has your your network changed in the people that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis who are some you know people that that stand out in your visits and and people that maybe you're still in touch with funny you say that um now it's become so global that I'll, I'll get people from Australia, Japan, Britain reaching out to me and saying, hey, Nate, I know that you wrote this article for Forbes about the luxury valuations of whiskeys uh, and you post some, some pretty incredible bottles yourself. Can you tell me if, if you're interested in these bottles, if you know someone that can purchase these or if you know the values of them? And so I get emails from literally around the world all the time of, of people saying, you know, I have this, my grandfather had this from World War One. Uh, do you know what it's worth? And, and, you know, one thing that came to me the other day was a really rare Australian collection. And it was pretty fascinating to see what was going on with it. It, it had had 70 different bottles that were all at minimum 90 years old uh, in the sense of, when they were manufactured. So we were talking about some things that were from World War One, and they had actually contacted the distillery and the distillery said on one of the bottles, that appears to be only the second one we've ever seen. And the first one is sitting in our archives right now. Y you know, so to, to hear the stories of, of things that are 
coming out and people spent literally nothing on these bottles you know in in the 1970s McAllen had a warehouse of 50 year bottles that were not able to sell for 50 pounds um if you could find a McAllen 50 year now for less than $50,000 uh, you'd be extremely lucky well that's incredible it it's kind of similar to what what I'm trying to do here in the sense of you know the opportunity to just either they reach out to you or you reach out to them to people that have similar interests that you know a topic that you find fascinating and just have a conversation and pick the brain and find out you know what's going on um one of the things that, that i've been excited about despite the fact that um i don't drink alcohol is you actually uh, helped create your own whiskey um and i believe it's a series right called diver you remember diver so yes tell me a little bit about wow, about that experience and, and and how that went I learned that uh, it is very hard to get something passed in the U.S. with liquor. <laughs> um, it was a great experience, but uh, wow, was it a, a long one. And, um, you know, from, from front to back, it was probably the best thing I had ever learned in this industry was the amount of energy that goes into producing, you know, just a single bottle is actually quite vast. So we had bottled it. And once it was bottled, it was put on a pallet in Washington State, and it was driven to New Jersey to be approved by the corporation, the head, head company. Uh, Westland is owned by Remy Quantro, so it went to Remy Quantro's head office. It got back on the pallet on the truck and went back to Washington State just so it could go from Washington State down to California. So if you look at that, that route of the three-tier system, uh, it's a very old system. It's almost prohibition era old, uh, in the sense that, you know, the amount of money spent driving it from Washington to New Jersey, back to Washington, just to go a few hours south to California is quite comedic. But that was probably the most interesting part of, of this whole uh, journey. And you know, the the best part about it though was actually um, trying the whiskeys and and coming up with a cask of diver that was one of the most interesting processes because we drove out to westland's facility where they have their casks in uh, southwest washington and uh, we went in tried eight different casks over you know we went picking for a few hours to find casks that we could do this with and then we did a taste test with eight of those casks narrowed it down to three and then had a panel of people select out of those final three, which ones would be uh, the top three to go with. And once that happened, we then bottled and that was to learn that experience and, and see what it takes to become a whiskey manufacturer is truly incredible. I have a lot of respect for, for whiskey companies. You mentioned a couple of times there, we and uh, Westland, who did you make the bottle with? Westland. Oh, so Westland, the company. Westland is the, yes, Westland is the company. They're an American whiskey out of Seattle, and they were purchased in 2016 uh, by Remy Quantro. So, how did you go about choosing to make the bottle with them? I'm sure there's hundreds of distilleries and options and people to choose from. What made you go with Westland? Right, uh, Westland. Um, we had a great relationship to begin with, and. 
the team there was fantastic. So we knew a lot of the individuals on that front. And um, in that respect was an easy transition to do something with them. And to be fair, they were very forward in their approach to being a company that was related to social media and the way that social media is changing the marketing game. So that was kind of an opportunity to get our first essentially social media cask out there. So that was quite nice. How would you um, say, or what would you say is the most important things to look for when, when looking to, to partner with, uh, with people? Some of the people I've spoken to recently uh, in the area of entrepreneurship, especially have talked about whether it's co-founders um, or, or you know, VCs or anything like that, uh, any type of investor. Uh, and they all have certain things that they say, you know, this kind of tells me that this is a go or no go with this person or group. What are some things that you look for um, in, in your relationships with people and in, in you know, your network? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I really think that the business that I'm in uh, involves being personable. Um, when I started this account, there was 300 of us, maybe maybe less, doing whiskey accounts on Instagram. I would argue that there's probably 60,000 accounts out there now. So, you know, there's a lot of options for people to choose where they want to market. Uh, being friendly and friends and with the people that I work with really has helped in, in a great sense of the fact that, um, well, there's, there's twofold, really. One is, you know, being flexible and being able to say when a brand says, hey, Nate, we, we have a request. Can we do this for a specific project as opposed to this? And being, being flexible and saying, yeah, you know what? No problem. That's, that's great. I, I completely understand where you're coming from versus being that guy that is like, oh, no, you know, I, I have my way of working. I don't really want to do this. I don't think people really enjoy working with someone in that respect when, when they can just really go anywhere. So I think being flexible is, is very helpful in being successful in this. And um, second, I still think you need a great product, right? So um, my product does speak for itself in terms of the following that it has and, and the, the cult-like following and uh, essentially interaction that I have with each of my posts. I'm, I'm very lucky to have that kind of uh, audience that does follow along very closely and, and, you know, likes and comments on, on most of my things, which is really nice to see that there's that in engagement. And also people know that I will engage right back with them every time. And I think that's also crucial too. And how has it changed? Obviously a lot of, uh, of companies reach out to you in order to connect, but um, what is, what is your approach? And when you want to reach out to another company or another brand to, to, you know, approach, uh, a relationship, how do you go about, you know, building a new bridge, so to speak? Um, and where do you look to I do that? I still reach out the old fashioned way and uh, email or direct message brands. I feel like uh, that's something that some people definitely feel they're too good for. Uh, I'll always continue to work my hardest to continue to add new brands and new companies to my portfolio. Uh, I think the only way to understand you know, the minute you think you're too big, you will become too small. And that's very important. And I've always lived by that, you know, 
I don't think that I'm bigger than anybody or any other account or anything like that. I just I will always try and work my hardest to consistently stay at the forefront though because it's it's easier to be left behind when you're you know one of the one of the top people than it is to stay on top. And so you have to work almost harder to stay on top versus if you were you know trying to get there, right? So I would I would argue that it's it's harder staying in a, in a place of uh, happiness and versus versus getting to that peak if that makes well, sense. That does that does that's really that's really interesting. Um, I like the fact that you said you know you got to kind of stay humble and just the, the the personal touch that you describe in all of your relationships um, and in the people you connect with, I think is awesome. I know I'm lucky enough to be on on the uh, the other end of one of those. You know, people always make fun of the fact that, um, you know, we we live thousands of miles away. We met on an airplane. Your business is scotch, and I don't drink. Um, and yet, you know, we have we have a great friendship, and it's it's a uh, great friendship. It's, it's awesome. I think the last thing I'd ask you before I let you go is, you know, as someone who's who's in industry and has gone the entrepreneurial path and created a business and a brand. Um, what advice would you give to people who are now looking to make a name for themselves, whether it's to get a, you know, a job as an, an employment at a company and just get themselves seen? Uh, people are looking to network. People who want to get hired uh, and want to stand out. Obviously, in addition to their regular skill set, uh, what are some things that, that you think are most important to have in order to, to make you stand out from a crowd? I think what what made me successful was persistence. Um, a lot of what I have done, you know, I had to wait a good eighteen months before I saw any income even come into the business. Uh, it was just persistence, you know. I I kept posting. I was paying, you know, to go on trips myself to meet people, and I was putting money into it myself and. You know, that's one thing is that, in, do you believe in it? Yes. Do you believe in it enough to put money into it? And that can drastically change the way you think. I'll kind of always ask myself those kind of questions. If I'm starting something new or doing something, do I believe in it? And do I believe in it enough to put my own money behind it, right? And in this particular case, I did, and it paid off, which is very fortunate. Um, but the persistence was the key. If I had just decided to let this linger and, and have an account for fun as a hobby and not pushed on, on turning it into a monetary thing, um, I think that we wouldn't be talking right now, to be honest with you, because I wouldn't have met you on that plane in New York. Uh, it's one of those things where if you want to stand out, you just have to push more than everybody else. I know that in most jobs and job applications, um, you're competing with so many people that are just willing to do more than you. And, and that's why they get the job and you don't. And, and so the goal is to try and outwork everybody else so that you are the one that gets the job. If that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Nate, thank you so much for doing this with me and for hopping on this podcast. And, uh, I think anything for you, thank man. you. This is a, a great, great podcast. I'm so happy for you. Thank you for making me your, first guess absolutely right? it is right I, I just felt like our our kind of if you want to call it a meet cute but of the way we connected and those those unconventional relationships um are the ones that i've 
learned the most from and gained the most from over my lifetime. And, you know, I've had such great conversations with people. And as soon as I thought about, you know, just speaking to people that are new and that are outside of your, your circle and, and getting to connect with new people, you were the first name that came to mind. Uh, and so it was so exciting to, to get a, to have a conversation with you. So thank you so, so much.